0: Good morning. Watching the lights come up. There you are. Hello. Glad you're here today. Some of you weren't in here when we first started, so I hadn't said good morning yet. But glad you're here. For those of you that may be new, my name is John and pastor here. And we are in a teaching through the book of Romans. And we've been in it for a little while. You can always catch up if you go online. But we've been in it for a little while. And we hit um, a couple of weeks ago, we hit a section of three chapters in Romans. That where Paul is talking about Israel, and I got to tell you, it, this section of scripture is interesting to me because if I were just doing messages about whatever, okay, if I were doing messages about marriage or about anxiety or about other things, if we weren't teaching our way through a book, Romans chapter 9, 10, and eleven probably wouldn't be on the list to preach okay? They deal with Israel. There are some sort of highlight verses that get picked up, unfortunately, out of context and used in other places. But it's not necessarily when I would just be like, you know what? I really want to do a message on Romans 10. Like, it wouldn't normally happen that way. And so the fact that we're teaching our way through the book kind of forces us in a good way to deal with everything that's here and then to be able to understand it in its full context. And these chapters 9, 10, and 11, having to deal with uh, Paul and and his view on Israel and what the gospel the good news means for them is something that I think a lot of Christians have questions about, but don't necessarily get the answers to those questions. And we started our groups two weeks ago when we started Romans chapter 9. And I got to be honest, at first I was like, oh no, like we should have planned that better. (laughs) Because I don't know how this is going to go with our group starting off with discussion about Israel because not everybody has that full knowledge or context or whatever. And I got to tell you, the discussions and groups have been amazing. They've been awesome. And God has been able to show us with these passages that we might avoid because we're not most of you here are not Jewish believers. So you might avoid these passages, but God has shown us through them not only what his plans are for Israel, but also what his plans are for us and what we can learn. And it's been really great over the last few weeks. And one of the big questions that Paul needs to answer is he's talked about the fact in Romans chapter 10. It's what we covered last week. He's talked about how the the Jews can receive Christ the same as the Gentiles do and that they can be saved. And he's talked about them as individuals, but also as a nation. And the big burning question is, has God, because of Jesus, because salvation doesn't come through the law, which the Jews have, because salvation has come through Jesus Christ, does that mean that God is done with Israel as a nation? Is he done with them? Has he moved on? Has he switched plans? So now it's the church, and Jews can be a part of that church, but Israel is no longer a factor, it's no longer a thing, and now it's the church, and now the church inherits all of those promises, as if church is like spiritual Israel. Is that how it works now? Well, the answer is no, that God has a plan for Israel, that he has, that he is still going to fulfill all of his promises to them. And God deals differently with Israel as a nation than he deals with us as a church. And so it's important as we're reading through to understand that so that we can properly apply things that we read. And again, we're going to come to some spots here in Romans chapter 11, which is where we're starting today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get there. In Romans chapter 11 where if we think that Paul is talking about us, we will make some big mistakes in understanding God and his character. We need to understand that he is talking about Israel. It's very important to understand here, okay? That's, that's just understanding and reading things in context, which is something that we always should do as we're reading, all right? So we're going to get right into it, Romans chapter 11. I feel like every week it's been like there's no pleasantries up front. It's like we just got to get into this because we're covering so much ground, but that is, uh, it's worked out pretty well so far. So uh, is God done with Israel as in? Does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, we pause for a second. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about what's going on here. Because Paul, before he was a Christian, was a Pharisee. He he knew the, uh, he knew the Torah inside and out. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. He knew all of these stories. And so he will drop a one-liner in here or a one-quote or whatever here. And he has in mind the entire context of that story in order to bring it up. But we may not have the entire context of that story. So I want to talk about what he's talking about with Elijah. And if we understand what, the, what has happened with Elijah, then we're going to understand why this is so significant on a greater level. All right? And we're going to rewind quite a bit. And this is going to, be, this is going to cover roughly 1 Kings like 17, 18, and 19, roughly. All right? So in Israel, a king rises up whose name is Ahab, and Ahab rises up as king of Israel, and he is an Israelite, but he marries a woman who is not, and her name is Jezebel. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? We use that as an adjective in our society today, for good reason, by the way, as you'll find out. Jezebel was a worshiper of a false god called Baal. And you hear Baal come up. And forgive me, I'm going to give a bunch of names and just try to roll with the names here, okay? But Ahab marries Jezebel. Jezebel is a worshiper of Baal and ultimately convinces Ahab to do the same. And the scripture says that Ahab did more to provoke the anger of God in his lifetime than anybody who had come before him. Because he took the nation of Israel, and he, instead, of, instead of worshiping God, Yahweh, he, they worshiped Baal. And he allowed, King Ahab allowed Jezebel to persecute and kill all of the prophets of God. Almost all of the prophets of God in Israel. And so God sees this. He knows all that is going on. And so he raises up a prophet named Elijah. And he says to Elijah, you are going to go to King Ahab and you are going to tell him because of their wickedness that there will be no rain on this land until I say so. And so Elijah faithfully goes to King Ahab and says, there will be no rain until I say so, says the Lord, because of your wickedness. And then God goes immediately to Elijah and says, hey, by the way, get out of here. (laughs) <laughs> it's, I love these little moments, all right? This is, this is a little moment in scripture where God is like, great, now run that way, <laughs> all right? Because he needs, he needs Elijah, and of course, Ahab and Jezebel are now coming after him. And they're seeking out Elijah. And so Elijah has to go hide in the wilderness. And sure enough, the rain stops and there's a drought in the land. And Elijah is hiding out and God provides for him miraculously and incredibly. And I wish I could go into all that detail, but just don't have time. So read that for yourself. 1 Kings, Uh, that piece is probably in 16, 1 Kings 16, all right? Or no, 17, probably in 17. All right, but God provides for him in amazing, miraculous ways. Until the the nation of Israel has gone through this drought, and it says it's in the third year when God goes to Elijah and says, now go back, which must have been scary as you can imagine, because he knows they're after him. He says, I want you to go back there. And so he goes back, and again, there's really cool things that happen along the way, but he ends up back in front of Ahab. He ends up back in front of Ahab, and Ahab says to him, where have you been? troublemaker. That's what he says. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, a, it's cute. I don't know why it's cute, but it's just kind of cute. He's like, where have you been troublemaker? And Elijah says, no, 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 no. You got that backwards. I'm not the one that made this trouble, which I think Elijah, by the way, a little sassy. Okay. Like some of the things that he says, and if you read through, you're going to see this. He's just, he's got, he's got a quick wit to him. And so he says, he says, no, 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 no. <laughs> I am not the troublemaker. You have caused this trouble, not me. He says, you know what? I'll tell you what. Let's just see whose God is real. Let's do a little test. How's that sound? He says, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. Let's get two bulls, all right? And you get your prophets of to Baal together, and I'm here, and let's see which God is God. Okay? So I'll, we'll get the bulls, and you know what? You can pick your bull, you know? And we're going to put them on, and we can put them on a fire. You can build that thing however you want. It's got to be dry, though. So if you want to pick the dry-aged beef for your side, go ahead and do that. It's fine. All right, you build your side. I'll build my side. And then we'll call fire down by our God, and let's see what happens. And all the people in in the nation were like, this is great. Like, this is going to be fun. You know, this is, this is going to be, this is the showdown. They didn't have Netflix, okay? Like, this was the best show in town. They're gonna, we're going to find out which God is really God. And so Elijah says, you guys go first. So they go first, and they get to dancing around their altar and doing all the things that they're supposed to do. And, and you know what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. And Elijah, being Elijah, looks across at him, and he says, you know what? Maybe he's out of town. Maybe he's meditating or, 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 you know what, maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's asleep and you just got to wake him up. And so the prophets of Baal, they start going to town harder. They start cutting themselves and doing all of this. And, and what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. And was like, my turn. Tell you what, y'all, go get, uh, go get four pots, big pots of water. They bring back the pots of water. He says, pour them on the altar. And so they pour them on the altar. He's like, that's not good enough. Go do it again. So they went and got four more pots of water, and they poured them on the altar. And he's like, you know what? Three times the charm. Go do it again. And so they got four more pots of water, and they poured that on the altar. And now it says that it's absolutely soaked from top to bottom. There's a, there's a moat of water sitting around, the, uh, sitting around the offering, around the, around the, the pyre. And uh, Elijah prays and calls out to God, and what happens? fire so much so intense that it burns the bowl, it burns the wood it burns the stones around it it evaporates all of the water out of the fire and God has the victory in front of everybody and 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 Elijah has all of the prophets of Baal put to the sword great victory I mean, on top of the mountain, this should be the greatest thing, the greatest moment of Elijah's life. Like, like, he's standing in front of everybody and see God do this. And so he should have been absolutely on top of the mountain. The problem is, Jezebel wasn't there. And she finds out what happened. And when she finds out what happened, she says, May the gods do the same thing to me if by the end of the day tomorrow, Elijah is not dead. And so she puts out a contract on Elijah. And Elijah, when he should be at the absolute height of his life in ministry, everybody should have turned their lives over and started following again the God that he knew. They didn't. And he ends up fleeing. He ends up running and laying down under a tree. And saying, God, why don't you just kill me? If that doesn't do it, if that's not enough, if I'm the only one left, then why don't you just kill me and be done with it? Just end this. It's over. And so God comes to him and he gives, God gives him, miraculously, some food. And it's enough to keep Elijah sustained for 40 days. And he says, Elijah, you start walking that way. And Elijah walks for 40 days and 40 nights, a pretty significant number in the Bible. He walks for 40 days and 40 nights until he gets to Mount Horeb. It's called the Mountain of God. And on Mount Horeb, he climbs up and he goes inside of a cave. And inside the cave, God speaks to him and he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And Elijah says... Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. It's over. And so God says, go outside and stand on the mountain. And Elijah walks outside and stands on the mountain, and God passes by. First, there's a great wind, but God's not in the wind. And then there's an earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake. And then there's a fire, but God is not in the fire. And last, a still, small voice. And God says, Elijah, stand on the mountain. And he asks him again, what are you doing here? And Elijah gives exactly, word for word, the same answer he gave the first time. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. And Elijah thinks that he's alone. He thinks he's the last one. He thinks he's the only one who's faithful. He thinks he's the only one who's honoring God, and he's the only one who's speaking for God. And God says, that's not true. He says, I want you to go, and I want you to anoint a new king, of Syria. And I want you to go and I want you to anoint a new king of Israel. And I want you to go and I want you to anoint a new prophet who will take your place, Elisha. And I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so he thought it's over. There's nobody left. And God's answer to him is, that's not true. But you have not seen the way I have been working and what I've been doing. And I will be faithful to you and I will be faithful to this nation, even if you don't see it yet and you don't know how I'm doing it. You don't have to know until the time is right. And the time was right. He didn't know it. But the right hand man of Ahab was a man who loved God with all of his heart. And he had been secretly stashing away and keeping safe prophets of the Lord so that Jezebel couldn't get to them. A hundred of them. He'd had them living in caves. There were 50 men per cave. God had been protecting the nation and preserving the nation, even though Elijah, who was the key leader of the nation at the time, couldn't see it and didn't know it. And God was going to be faithful to them no matter what. 7,000 men, now listen, 7,000 men, that's not a lot of people. It's a a lot of people, but it's not a lot of people. It's not an earthquake, and it's not a wind, and it's not a fire. But it's a small voice, and that's enough. God had been preserving and protecting. Elijah thought he was the last one left. He thought he was the only one faithful. Chicken little, man, the sky is falling. (laughs) I think we can be guilty of that same mentality. When it comes to us, we think about our lives or the world or whatever else. We think, man, I'm the only one who's doing this. I'm the only one who gets it. I'm the only one who's being faithful. I'm the, or, or we could think that as a church. We're the only church that's being faithful. We're the only church that's teaching this. We're the only church that's saying this. We're the only, we're the only, we're the only. And guess what? It's not true. God is working in ways and places and in people that we will never, ever see and doing things that we can't possibly comprehend. To think if for even a second that we could wrap our mind around the expanse of what God is doing and how he's moving, is foolish and arrogant on our part. We must remain faithful. We must remain consistent. We must remain trusting in God, the same as Elijah. Instead of, oh, woe is me, I'm the last one left. Why don't you just kill me? Elijah should have trusted in God that he would preserve and protect his nation. And Paul says, yes, you look even now. Paul is saying to the, to the Romans, you look even now and you see that the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus. But that doesn't mean all hope is lost. That doesn't mean everybody has turned away. God will preserve, will protect, will fulfill his promises to Israel. He will. God is working out his plan, even if we can't see it yet. So he says in verse 5, Romans chapter 11, verse 5, Even so then... At this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. He said it's got to be one or the other. It's not a mixture of both. It's by the grace of God that there is a remnant and that God will preserve them. Now, I do think this is really important. This is a spot where people look at uh, you know, the words like election and all of that and, and use this often in the discussion about us and salvation as New Testament Christians. And, and if you want to have that conversation, you can have that conversation, but it needs to happen somewhere else because that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about us. He's not talking about the church. He's not talking about New Testament Christians and how we're justified or anything like that. He's talking about Israel here, that he has that he has a plan for them and that he's known about this plan all along and that he will fulfill it by grace, not by works. God is good and he is faithful. And I think what we need to, to take away from this as believers, among other things, is to know that God's promise to Israel is true, that he does not break his promises and that he will be faithful to them. And if he is faithful to the promises of Israel, we can have confidence to know that he is faithful to the promises he's made us, which are different. okay? but we have the same confidence to know that he will be faithful and follow through on the promises that he's made to us. And if you're in a group this week, one of the things you're going to talk about is what promises has he made to us? All right. So that you know what to count on, what to stand on and what to trust in. All right. Verse seven. What then? Israel has not obtained What it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Um, Now, again, very important for us to understand he's talking about Israel. He's not talking about us here. So what he's saying is that God has blinded or has prevented Israel from accepting Christ as a nation. Why? He's going to go more in depth on this next in what we read next week. But it is so that the church would open up to all people that everyone could be a part of it, but he's still going to make, uh, make his promises true and faithful to Israel. All right. But this is about them. Now, how does he blind them? Where, when, all of that, you know, that people, people debate this and talk about this a lot. And I'm just, I'm going to say it as simply as I can. That is above my pay grade. Okay. I do not know. I don't know. Uh, here's what I know. I know that I have a choice in whether I choose Christ and how I follow Him. Beyond that, how God works, where He works, what He does, what He doesn't do—all that—I, hey, no idea. Okay, He's—I'm not Him. I'm not Him. So to think that I could understand how that all works and how he's doing it and where, or to think that I could look at him and say one thing is fair or another thing is not fair, that is way, way beyond me. That is not my job, and I can't possibly wrap my mind around the mind of God. I can learn about him what he shows me. I can see in his character what he shows me. And I can know that I have choices to make, and I have things that he wants me to do. But how all that is going on behind the scenes and how he blinded Israel and when and where and all that, who and... I don't know. And I think, that if, I think that if we nitpick that or argue that, we'll lose the, the, the most important thing, which is to know that God's promises are true. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's not trying to get people hung up on how that worked or whatever. Just the fact that God is allowing this to happen to Israel because he has a bigger plan that's going on. And that is his choice. All right, does that mean they're gone? Does that mean they're out? Verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? He talked about stumbling earlier, right? We read about this a week ago, the the stumbling stone. Jesus was the stumbling stone or the rock of collision. They've run into Jesus and they rejected him. Are they going to fall? Is it final? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. He said, this is the truth, and I am teaching this, but I am teaching this, and I want the Jews to hear the gospel and to realize that God is doing something in the church, that he's welcoming the Gentiles in. I want them to know, I want them to hear that the law can't save them and the law can't purify them. I want them to see that and I want it to provoke them to jealousy. So what does that mean? It's kind of an odd phrase. And so I was, as I was thinking through it this week and maybe an analogy that's helpful for me. I want you to imagine for a second that you are the star athlete on a team. Okay? You're a star athlete on a team. And this analogy isn't perfect, but it's, uh, it helped me, okay? You're the star athlete on the team. And all of a sudden, the coach says, we're going to make a change, okay? We're going to do things differently. We need to get back to basics. That's what we need to do. We're getting too fancy. You're the star. You love to showboat. You love to go out there, and we'll say it's basketball. So you love doing your, your fancy things in basketball, okay? you doing your layups, <laughs> No, windmill dunks, I don't know, alley, I don't know. So you love to showboat, and he's like, we're going to get back to basics. Okay, we're going to get back to basics, right? But you're still out there and doing your thing, right? Because that's the way you've always done it before. And suddenly the coach makes a decision one day to bench you and put in the new guy because he's better at the fundamentals. How would you feel? You would be provoked to jealousy, right? You'd be like, I should be out there. Why does... Why does, he get, why does he get to be out there? Why does she get to be out there playing the game? And you got two options when you're provoked to jealousy. You can pout about it. You can, leave, you can pout about it and leave the team and woe is me and oh, they don't appreciate it, all that kind of stuff. Or you can get your act together, get back to basics and get in the game. Right? Israel, Israel has not been rejected by God. Israel has been put on the bench. Okay? They've been put on the side burner while the church is playing the game. And when the time comes where Israel is finally ready to get back in the game and humble themselves and accept Christ, then they get back in the game. And we're all in it together. All right? That's that's the way that it works. Have they stumbled that they would fall? No. Paul is preaching so that they will be provoked to jealousy. They will see the gospel, and they will respond to the gospel. Now, that response may be to pout on the bench. Or that response may be to get in the game. And his prayer is that they would respond to the gospel and start playing. Because, God, because Paul knows how much God loves Israel. They are his people. And my, you look through the Old Testament and they broke his heart over and over and over and over and over again. And he kept bringing them back in. They failed over and over and over and over and over again, but God kept bringing them back in because of the promises that he made to them. Listen, to those of us that are believers, we have different promises than Israel has. But even if we're his child, we we fail over and over and over and over again, and he continues to bring us back in because he's made promises to us, and he will fulfill those. And we can stand on them just as confidently as Israel can stand on the promises God has made To them. But to experience the fullness of that, we need to play the way the coach wants us to play and do the things he wants us to do. Verse 15: For if they're being cast away, all right, is the reconciling of the world. So if by them being put on the bench, it means the church gets to play and Gentiles can become part of the family of God. It's the reconciling of the world. What will their acceptance be but life? from the dead that when they finally when Israel finally says we're in when finally when Israel finally says we accept Christ nationally as a group what an incredible day that's going to be what an amazing day you know some as Christians sometimes especially you know in America where we're not sort of in the middle of this culturally maybe you've wondered why is Israel important and what how should we think about Israel or what should we be doing what we should be doing is praying for the salvation of Israel. Amen. Not only for individuals, first and foremost, but ultimately for the nation. It doesn't mean that right now the government of Israel, we support everything that they do or the decisions that they make. or It's, it's not that. It's that we trust God to preserve his nation and to fulfill his promises to them. And our prayer for them is that they would be saved and to accept Christ as their Savior, the same as we have. So that one day, the church and the Jews can join together as one in the kingdom of God. And it's going to be an incredible day. And so we need to be praying for that to come and to happen. And in the meantime, standing on and trusting the promises that God has made to us just like he's made promises to them. And what that means for us is that no matter what we go through, no matter what we face, no matter what life has to throw with us, we understand who we are in him, what he wants to do in us, the promises he's made to us now and forever, that no matter what happens in the world, no matter what happens in our life, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, our foundation is rock solid and stable. And we can look at every situation and say, God, how do you want to use this? To continue fulfilling your promises in me. As we wait for him to con- f- fulfill his promises to Israel as well. All right. So let's go to him and thank him for that together today. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. One promise you have made to us firmly. We know that if we trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we will be saved. If we trust in you for salvation, we will be saved. I pray that there would be someone with us today who would accept that for the first time. They would put their trust in Jesus, and his death on the cross, in their place, and in his resurrection, and that today they would trust in you, Jesus, by faith. And then for all of us, God, as we think about Israel and the promises that you've made to them, to know that you will be faithful and you will follow through. And that you have a plan and you're working that plan out and we don't really we don't fully understand what it is and but we know that you will do that. And there's coming a day when Israel as a nation will finally accept Messiah, Jesus. And in the meantime as we as the church welcome everyone in, both Jew, Gentile, Male, female, no matter where we're from or anybody can become part of the family of God in Christ. We want to stand every single day and trust every single day in the promises that you've made to us. Promises to be with us. Promises to lead us and guide us with your spirit and in your word. Promises to empower us and strengthen us promises to use us for your glory. And so, Father, we stand on all of those promises, and we we count them as done. And we ask that every day as we face the world, that nothing would shake that, that you would remind us every single day of who we are and what you're doing in us and what you will complete in us. That you would allow us to share with the people in our life that hope that we have in you. That confidence that we have in you. So the believers that are shaky, maybe they're, maybe they're shaky because they've sinned and they don't understand your forgiveness or freedom. And so they're living with shame or with guilt. That you would allow us to encourage them and to show them the forgiveness that they have and help them to walk in freedom maybe they're believers and people in our life that have bound, been bound up by rules and regulations and religion and all of this, and they they're feel trapped by it. That you would allow us to encourage them and show them that you've given them the spirit that you're leading and guiding them, that their responsibility is to follow him, listen to him, and that we might be a part of setting them free from the chains of a new law. Father, maybe there's someone in our life who has not put their faith in you, in Christ for salvation. And so they're walking around under the weight of their sin, fear of the unknown and what's coming, with shame, with guilt, with regret with questions and in the leading and the power of the Spirit that you would allow us to share true life and hope with them. The promise not only of salvation in Christ, but the promise of freedom and life and joy as we walk with you. And so, Father, we're asking you to continue moving and to continue changing us, solidifying our foundation, strengthening our relationship with you, using us more and more for your message and glory, receiving the good news, and also being a good news person. All that we've talked about today, all that we've decided Everything you've done in our hearts and in our minds, we thank you for God. And we ask that you continue to use it in our life as you transform us. As we love you and you love us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.